Right, hello, and welcome Hi. to the first Fuel Media Marketing video where we deep dive into the media issues of the day. Today, we are lucky to be joined by Clive Howes of MI Media and Kelly Martin from Fix Mobility to share their knowledge and experience as we discuss the topic of media agency and client relationship management. Let's introduce them properly. Clive is the CEO of MI Media, the all-media performance agency he set up 12 years ago. Prior to MI, he had been a lifer at Mediacom, joining as a press buyer in 1991 before leaving 17 years later as MD of the 90 Strong Performance Division. Clive's mantra in life is, you've got to look after your people, whether that's ensuring your client's business is growing or making sure the MI media team are happy. It seems to be working as the agency now manages over 70 million client advertising spend every year and has been recognised by Campaign as one of their best places to work. Moving on to Kelly. So Kelly is the Global Head of Offline Marketing and Media for Fixed Mobility, where she leads a team responsible for media, direct marketing, partnership and media sales. Prior to Flix, Kelly spent most of her career working for broadcasters such as Sky, UK TV and NBC, where she managed the owned media strategy to support the launch of new content, products and services across linear and demand. Early on in her career, she was a TV planner buyer and moving to Flix enabled Kelly to get back into working on paid media campaigns. She describes this as being a steep learning curve as the media landscape is constantly evolving. She views the agency relationship as vital in delivering business success and believes the best way to deliver results is by working with agencies as a partner and extension of the team. You're both very welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Ollie. Thank you. Right, so John's going to lead us off. Charlie, uh, we recently ran a LinkedIn poll asking what the most important consideration should be when contracting a media agency. And unsurprisingly, transparency came out on top with 52% of the votes. But in a very strong second position was were SLAs and deliverables in, uh, with 32% of the vote. So Kelly, if you don't mind, could we start with you? and really ask you what your opinion of these results are and yeah. do they really chime with your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a really um, pertinent question. So I worked with um, Fuel Media Marketing last year. We ran an agency pitch process in Germany and I think one of our key imperatives was that we got a lot of transparency from, from the agencies through the pitch process. Uh, a lot of Flix's activity, um, historically being a performance marketing client, is run in-house. So there was a nervousness around working with a big agency network that we wouldn't get that visibility, um, particularly over pricing and rebates, for example. So it was um, a really key question that we posed to all of the agencies that took part in the pitch process. Um, equally, um, price being a performance marketing client was a really key factor for us, um, but also the, the quality of service that we, did, uh, that we got. Um, so having worked with some different agencies in the past, I think it was always um, a frustration point if we didn't get the right level of service or responses um, to client briefs. So I think, yeah, I, that really chimes with um, my experience of working with agencies and what we want from our agency partners. Excellent, thank you. Um, well, that's, I think, what we, we, we tend to find. Um, Clive, I wonder if you could maybe give us your... Yeah, I, I'm not at all surprised by the findings. Um, transparency is all about trust, and without trust, you haven't got anything, have you, really? Um, so I, I totally uh, get that one. I think the SLA one is interesting. I, I, I wonder, I, to me, that seems a bit like it should be a given. I don't know. I... I I'm surprised, and I wonder if that's about making things tangible um, in that when you start off with a relationship, knowing exactly what you're going to get back um, is, is important. Part of, actually, because as an industry, I think quite a lot of times uh, agencies overpromise and underdeliver. So maybe, maybe the SLA is a reflection of that. But to me, it's about, you know, I, I suspect what people are really looking for is tangibility. And if you said, well, it's an SLA, or actually, is it sort of guarantees of performance? They go, yeah, yeah, I'll have that. I'll have the guarantees of performance. Yeah, SLA, that's just services. You know, if, if that's, that is a given. I wonder if it's, if it's a cry for help in terms of wanting something much more tangible in terms of the results you get out of your agency, which so many agencies are actually quite kind of shy of, of, of committing to, aren't they? Exactly. No, it's, it's something that goes back over the years, I think. 
Okay, that's great. Well, that starts off really the, um, the thoughts from our initial poll. Um, could I just ask you also, this is a question, it's one of my favourites actually, but, um, and I've been doing this for years, uh, which agency remuneration model do you favour? Is it commission-based? And maybe Kelly, you could take this first again, if you don't mind, but is it commission-based, uh, a fixed resource model, or maybe a hybrid of the two, or maybe an, an alternative? Um, definitely a hybrid approach, um, but the approach that I quite like is the commission-based model plus PRF, so a performance-related fee um, attributed to the agency. So ensuring, again, if we go back to, I think, Clive's point around SLA, it's a guarantee of performance. I think what, what I've experienced as well from, from my agency that I've worked with in, in Germany is by having a PRF there, it really sharpens focus. Um, and I think then for the next campaign, what we've discovered as well, that any kind of rooms, room for improvement um, was definitely taken into account and addressed in the second campaign. So I think it just gives the agency another incentive uh, rather than a standard post-campaign analysis. So I think it's something that um, I haven't actually historically done. It's mainly been a commission-based model. Um, but being at Flix, our whole heritage is in performance marketing. So it was weird not to have a performance related fee in there. Um, so I think it works really well. And that's been my experience in the agency also, I think, in addition to the audit has given them a bit more, um, yeah, a bit more incentive to drive and over deliver for us. Perfect, perfect. Clive, do you want to respond? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty aligned with Kelly on that. I think there's a slight difference from my perspective in that actually um, most of our remuneration is a mix of fee and commission, right? And there's a really good reason for that. So we work, we work with a real variety of clients. And sometimes you'll be talking to a client there, which is relatively new into the market. There's a lot of initial setup costs. And yeah, they may, they may have ambitions to spend a, a, you know, a million pounds, but actually the final budget comes through at 200,000 pounds. Um, and the commission just doesn't quite get to cover all your initial setup costs. Sounds so the fee just protects you. You know the income's going to come through and, and you can plan the resource around that. However, commissions are a really important part of it as well. We're what I call a growth business. So, so we, we take clients on and they start spending 50 grand a month. And before you know it, they're up to half a million or three quarters of a million, et cetera. So, it, you know, it's really important for us to be able to build with that and the commission allow, having an element of commission allows us to do that, obviously, because our income goes up in relation to that. But back to, back to Kelly's point, the PRF bit is the extra bit on, the extra bit on top, which is really critical as far as I'm concerned. Um, that, that, that allows us to share in success, yeah? I've just said it, you know, the previous answer about sort of delivering tangible results. So if we do that and we grow the business, then it's lovely as an agency to be able to share in that success and, and kind of grow our margins um, based on that. So it's kind of, it, that, you know, it's pretty much what Kelly said with just that slight caveat of, of fee and commission. Excellent. Thank so you. doing well there. We're both agreeing, I think, just good. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get a bit I of know the question now. where we won't. <laughs> we need to get a bit of spice. It's unusual for me. Always <laughs> <laughs> going to take over now and get some spice. Yeah, so just following on from John's question, really, um, have either of you come across or offered a client or been offered as a client any new commercial models? Interesting. Shall I take that one? Yeah, go um, on, Kelly. It's, yeah, food for thought, actually. No, um, at this current moment, but it's sparked a thought as to whether it should be something, um, considering the current financial climate, whether we should be considering some a different framework going forward. So it's um, because Netflix operates across multiple markets that may differ by market, but I think it's something that, yeah, for us, maybe as a, as a business, we need to consider. It's, it's an interesting question because actually, as, as, as a, a business which is very focused around numbers, we're very comfortable working to a CPA model, for instance. So we're, you know, we'll work to a fixed CPA. Um, you know, there's one caveat to that, which is that, you know, that, that CPA is an improvement on what that client's experienced. As you're going into, as I'm sure we'll talk about shortly, a, a, quite a, a period of, of kind of recessions coming down the road. If they were doing 60 pounds last year cost per acquisition, 
then actually maybe that's not the fair reflection of what the base should be. Maybe in a recession, it would go up to 70s, and if you get down to 50, it's a huge improvement. So, so you've got to be a little bit careful, but we're very comfortable working to a CPA model. However, we, we do it very, very rarely. And what's really interesting there is the clients will put it into their briefing document that they're very comfortable working, uh, certainly with an element of, of performance relating to, uh, you know, a number of PRF relating to performance, or even a, a CPA model. But actually, what tends to happen is the tr there isn't the trust at the early stages of a relationship. So when you say, yeah, we're happy to work that way, the client starts to move away from the screen a bit and start thinking, what's the catch? So, so in reality, whilst uh, we're comfortable with it, whilst clients say they are, a lot of the time it falls down on the fact that, well, what are the benchmarks? How are we going to measure it? Or are you trying to get one over on us? And, 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 it, and it tends to sort of disappear into the background at that point. So if we, if we can nail all that, then... Uh, yeah, absolutely. I've written like it down, uh... Clive. Hmm? <laughs> I've written it down, Clive. <laughs> Good challenges. I'm, what's really interesting, I mean, I've, I've bored on you with this before, is that we, we can see pretty quickly how optimised an advertising campaign is. So we, it only takes us probably a day or so to look at what someone's doing. And if, if their goal is to make their business more efficient and drive more customers, uh, in the short term, we know exactly, you know, the level to which we can do it. So the risk to us is actually relatively low. So um, that's why we're quite comfortable doing it. It's interesting that you picked up on the what's the catch element of it there, Clive. Mm. I think that, that talks to the, to the inherent um, trust issues in the industry um, that still exist and, and the, the feeling that clients are always one step behind the agency in their eyes. Yeah, I, I, I suppose, um, uh, you know, I don't know, I, I think clients, uh, you know, ag agencies will, will, I think clients are used to agencies that will make bold statements and bold claims, but actually very rarely back them up. And I suspect that when they meet an agency is willing to back them up, they're like, oh, hang on a minute, what's, you know, <laughs> is there some snake oil involved here or something? What, what is that, you know, that I think is why they think it's a catch. Yeah, I think for some businesses, um, from what I've experienced, there's a lack of trust with agencies. It's often sometimes seen as a dark art. So what hidden fees are there or backhanders with media vendors? So I think that's kind of where it emanates from. Um, and I think that's where an agency pitch was, I think, a really good process for me as a client rather than going with someone that I know, for example. I think it then you get that level of transparency on pricing um, and from the get-go what you're you're being guaranteed in terms of inflation mitigation etc so I think it goes back to the transparency point I think um, that's why I probably scored first in terms of the poll that you guys ran. There's, there's obviously a there's a business opportunity here guys isn't there which is that you know if if it, if if these deals don't happen because or this array, this sort of way of remuneration happen because of lack of trust Let's have a trusted third partner in there to measure it and make sure that the benchmarks that are being provided, everyone's comfortable with, yeah, you know, both client and agency. So maybe there's, uh, you know, you get fuel involved and uh, and we can get around that. Problem. We're all Absolutely. for that. Bye. You can you can come again. <laughs> Big advocate. We're we're not being paid for this, by the way, everyone. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, big advocate of auditing. I mean, when I back in the day when I was a TV planner buyer, um, really dreaded the audit. Um, but I can see the huge benefit for clients. And I think it does, again, reassure whenever you do like draft an agency contract and you've got a deal in place that that's actually being upheld and adhered to. So, yeah. Well, you've seen what the BBC, I've just thought of this, the BBC fact checker has done to um, Boris Johnson's career. So, um, hmm. Maybe we can be that. Yeah. Anyway, should we move on? Yep. Very, uh, this is one of the, uh, our favourite questions, and Ollie and I picked this one up uh, from recent press. And of course, we all know how things are moving from the economic uh, downturn predictions and inflation. Where's it going? Is it going to be bigger and bigger? Anyway, this was, this was a quote we picked up only about a month ago, uh, but it was when inflation was really kicking in. And the, here it is. And Clive, if I can ask you first, then we'll obviously go on to you, Kelly. Mm. After that. Um, the quote is from Paul Bainsford, who's the head of the IPA, I believe. And his, quote, and his um, statement was, agency fees will have to rise to keep pace with inflation. 
Now, Clive, again, if you can just take this one on, can right, you yeah. on the agency perspective of that sort of statement? I'll, I'll give you my perspective. I'm not sure it's industry-wide perspective, but if you, uh, you know, I, I've, we, we said in my intro that I'm a great believer in looking after people, uh, and, and we have done that as best we can with our team. We have tried to give uh, a level of salary increase which will protect their, 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 their quality of life, if you like. Um, and that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? What, how, what, you know, how altruistic that sounds. It isn't. It's self-interest. It's absolute self-interest. At the same time as we're seeing all this inflation, we're also seeing a recruitment market like I've not seen for 20 years, yeah? In that there is a shortage of people and everyone is suddenly expanding out again and they need the people and there's a rush for, for people with some experience to, to, you know, in terms of there's many more places than there are people available to do the work. So we're seeing quite frightening levels of inflation in terms of attracting new people. So at Jiro is a lot of self-interest. I don't want my team to go anywhere. So, so I, we are paying them more to make sure they're happy and they stay. Um, because you can't blame someone if they're offering, you know, someone's putting a whole load of money in front of them. However loyal and how much they like the place, you can understand it if they go. Now, you know, salaries are by far our biggest overhead. So if our salaries are going up fast, then our overheads are going up fast. So if I want to protect my profit margin, I, I need more income, right? So um, I can go to my clients, and guess what? My clients are being squeezed, and they'll go, well, of course I'd love to put your fees up 10%, right? But it, we can't do that. That's that's not going to happen. And and I've got some sympathy with that. Probably not going to sort of, uh, probably won't thank myself for saying this, but, you know, we, we do well when our clients are growing and doing well and we share in that success. So if my clients are feeling a bit of pain, you know what, I expect to feel a bit of pain too. So, so I don't expect to pass it all on to my clients, right? However, what can I do to mitigate it? What, what some agencies will do is they will dumb down the team. So basically, they'll, they'll put a cheaper team on the business. So for any clients who are watching this, just check your team. You know, is, is that really good account director who you used to speak to every day now turning up at the quarterly meeting? It's like, just, you know, just look at who the people are you're dealing with. Are, is there some dilution of quality? Because that's an obvious way, just have a cheaper team running the business. Yeah? Um, or let's be a bit more constructive. The other way is to generate more income. And that can be positive and it can be dark arts, right? Going back to Kelly's point in the last question, absolutely right. Um, and that can be PRS, which protect margin. It can be more products and services that add value to a client's business, where an agency's probably got an opportunity to earn a slightly higher margin. So they can do it in that way, which I think is positive. Um, or again, going back to Kelly's point, they can, uh, what, what agencies will do is they'll find other ways to generate income off the back of their spend. And that's a slippery slope because A, it's opaque, there's no transparency. Um, and I've, I've, I've actually worked with many clients as almost a kind of a consultant marketing advisor. And I'm sitting in a meeting and I, you know, I'm wondering, am I being, is this plan constructed to maximize the benefit to me as a client? Or is this plan constructed to maximize the benefit to the agency involved? And I, I've been doing media buying for longer than I can remember. I thought 30 years of media buying and I'm sitting there wondering about, about the, you know, the, 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 why the plan and how the plan's been constructed. So, you know, I, and I think that trust is diminished. The client is no longer looking to maximize the, 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 you know, the benefits of the client and, and they're now looking at, at, at what they're doing, you know, maximizing their own income. And, and I, can, I can give you a really good example. Of, and it's not based on the current recession, it's based on the old recession. Let's go back 2008, global meltdown, financial meltdown. Um, I, I have lots of clients, mates, basically, who will tell me what's going on. A client that I used to work on, uh, at my old agency, a very big work intensive bit of business. The, the fee that we had from them, the income we generated, was what I'd call fair. We, we were covering our costs with a, with a, an, an, a sort of an, an, ex, an acceptable margin on that business. Yeah. But only just, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was marginal. Um, uh, I saw him some years later, some years, two or three years later, he said, oh, Clive, we've just moved our business. And you won't believe it. The new agency, they halved our fee. I said, okay, so how are you managing with such a small team then? He went, no, no, same team. So, you know, we've got teams similar size and, and ex expertise and experience. And I said, well, so how do you think they're earning money out of you then? How, how are they making up the difference? He went, no, no, it's half the fee. 
And, and it, you know, I mean, John's smiling. I know why he's smiling. It's kind of like we all know what they were doing. They were earning money in, in lots of different undisclosed ways. And, and that is, that's you no longer master of your own destiny. You're, you're dealing with someone who's earning money from you in a way that you're no longer party to, right? And that, to me, is a fundamental breakdown in trust. Now, the, the problem is, and I'm, I'm, I'll be interested in Kelly's view on this, which is that... You're coming, Kelly. Sorry, Kelly. I, I think clients have been a little bit complicit in this because I said to him, well, how do you think, how do you think they're, you know, making up the difference? And I've got to be honest, I don't think he cared that much. I don't think that he, he had been able to say to his MD, I've halved our agency fee, yeah? And the MD had patted him on the back and... and, and Oh, glum old Clive saying, oh, yeah, but they're making it somehow. I, I don't think he wanted to, I don't think he wanted to face that. And I think that if you squeeze a client, if you, agents have got to earn money, right, to pay their costs. If you want them to do a good job for you, you've, you've got to reflect that. So if you have a fee, you're kind of bringing it on yourself a bit, but, but they're going to make money other ways. So I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, I'll go back to that word of transparency, right, which is, um, our, our plans are exactly how we're making money out of it. They, they want us to make money. They, it's important that we make money, but they kind of know how we're doing it. And I think that um, the, these pressures that we're seeing at the moment will, 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 will start to, to have dilution of quality and, and maybe force people, agencies, back to other ways of earning money. Excellent. Well, that, Clive, that was in itself. Uh, a complete episode, I think. So we may come back to it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like, oh, that's a that's a cobalt. I'd say I'm talking too much. No, no, that's uh, no, it's great. It was great. And Ke Kelly, if you if you can follow that, please. Can I just yeah. add a little little twist to it as well? Um, obviously, we're talking about fees. This quote fee is likely to to increase. Uh, do you think some clients might look to tackle this, maybe by moving some activity in house? So from a client perspective, that is. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I, as a client, have looked at um, in the, the last year anyway, looking at how we drive more efficiency as a business. Look, we're a very low margin business as well. So we need to be really careful with every euro that we're spending. Uh, so something that we've moved in-house is some of our online video activity that's, that's run in-house. Um, but I think, I think there's a risk in clients doing that because I think then there becomes a little bit of navel gazing and yeah. not really understanding what's happening in the rest of the landscape so I think I see pros and cons for moving some activity in-house and so that there's more um, control over your budgets more flexibility and more autonomy but I think from what I've experienced by moving some of that activity is that I'm then losing sight of what's happening in the rest of the landscape so I'm still a firm believer that working with an agency as a partner as, and as an extension of your team is the right approach. Um, that's not to say that I think running paid search in-house is not a bad thing to do either. So I think there's always a balance. And as long as you work with your agencies in the right way. Um, but I think there could be that could be a challenge, I think, for some businesses um, mm. that they may look to do that to reduce the, the agency fees and the cost they pay. Um, in terms of complicity, I think it's it's quite an interesting point, actually. If you were to say to me, we're going to slash your agency fees, um, but we're going to earn money in other ways, would I, as a client, really care? Um, I think I answer to uh, my bosses, uh, shareholders, investors, and in the current climate where every company, I think, is looking to drive as much profitability as possible. So, I guess that is actually quite a, um, a moral question for me. Um, do, do I care? Um, if I go back to my, my boss and say, look, I've slashed the agency fees, I'll get a good pat on the back. I'm sure of that. Um, but I think, look, I'm, jokes aside, I think I understand I've worked on the agency side. Agencies are a business. Um, equally, you know, if there's the cost of inflation, how do they combat that? How do they retain staff? Uh, I do think there's a risk of getting more junior people on, on your account, depending who the client is. Um, and I'm sure that if you're part of a big agency deal and with big pitches going on, I think there might be some clients that are really benefiting and getting some really good pricing, but that probably will be um, affecting some other clients 
Um, so I see a risk there that some other clients that maybe aren't spending the volume um, of the big brands out there might well suffer uh, um, as a result. Yeah, excellent. Well, there's an episode there as well. I've just seen from your point of view. That's, that's good. Can I add on? Can I add to something, Kelly? Oh, said, go on, It's a great, great answer from Kelly. And I, there's, I just any any clients out there who are going through that in-housing debate at the moment. I just want to share something with them briefly, which is that, um, and again, this is feedback from client mates who, who've gone through this process. Is that is what what clients aren't aware of. Yeah. Because you know the the agencies are swan like in their serenity. Whether is what's going on behind the scenes, right? Uh, one of my or most agencies have a, a problem with very high levels of churn with their with particularly their digital people. You know, if you stay in the same job for six months, you're kind of lagging behind your, your contemporaries in that sector, right? So there's lots of churn and lots of movement. So you know, even if you find someone, yeah. Uh, the chances of them staying with you for longer than a year are fairly negligible. Now, when you're dealing with a big search team, you can we can mitigate against that. We, we work hard to, to make sure it doesn't happen, but you can also mitigate it when it does. Add in this horrendous you know, um, recruitment situation at the moment, and, and I think that many clients out there who are thinking about it just need to think about the headache of, of finding these people, keeping them, and replacing them because it's, it, it's expensive and it's a massive draw on resource. But with an agency, you know, an agency is kind of taking care of that for you. Yeah, no, no, I think, yeah, really, really interesting point there. Um, I think during COVID, we were really lucky as a business that we didn't experience huge amounts of churn, but I know the effort that goes into the recruitment and onboarding um, mm. is a bit of a headache. So I think that's something I think for, internal teams to to think about and consider um, particularly particularly on the digital side where i see a lot of movement from the agency to the client side yeah and that's where the money's spent yeah absolutely ollie absolutely thank you so um we've discussed it a couple of times it's already come up so consumer price inflation um that's becoming quite rampant we saw rampant media inflation certainly during 2021 across most of the markets in the world. How do you see inflation uh, for the remainder of 2022 and 2023? Do you have uh, intelligence that it's likely to continue at this rate for media, or do you think it's going to likely to slow down? Do you want me to have a go at that one? Yeah, yeah go for it. Uh, I, I think that's... Um... The, the horrendous situation over in Ukraine at the moment, plus the you know, and the knock-on impacts of that in terms of accelerating uh, price increases, is inevitably having an impact on consumer purchasing. Right. So, so uh, I think that we're going to, to my mind, that we're, you know that has to be having a deflationary impact on the market. All right. The, the, we've got a unique situation coming up, though, in, in, in the media market this year, which is well, World Cup coming up pre, at pre-Christmas. There's one time a year everyone has to advertise pre-Christmas. And guess what? We've got a World Cup to boost that demand even further. And I think that's what's fueling this debate, which is, oh, my God, we're going to have horrendous levels of TV inflation. that have a knock-on impact. What are we going to do? This is horrendous. But I'll, I'll go back to that that depressionary uh, – depression? I've just made up new words. That that – that 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 defla deflationary impact of of the price increases out there around that, um, and also I'm I'm going to advocate that we're going to see the the big stay in. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I when there's a World Cup on, I'm usually down the pub with my mates. Um, fewer and far between, they're all sort of at home now, but I, usually down the pub with a mate, watching England play, and 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 great, and really enjoying it. Right, however. You know, six quid a pint, whatever it is in, in Bromley these days. I might just say, come on, guys, I've been down to Morrison's, got a whole load of bottles of soul in, come around and watch the game in my house. We might have the big stay in, all right? So um, if you put all that viewing back into the mix, uh, it's a supply and demand equation, TV airtime. So we're suddenly going to see a huge surplus of, of, of viewing levels, and, and that will again will have a deflationary impact. So my gut feel when I saw this question from you was that I believe media inflation looks to me like it will track below where, um, uh, where consumer price inflation is, yeah? 
And I was going to be really, I was going to be really glib and say, well, no one really knows, do they, Ollie, whatever. However, actually, I'll tell you who does know. I, the place I always goes for this. I go to Zenith, right? And Zenith, do, they spend an inordinate amount of money uh, researching media marketplaces globally. And it's, and it's fantastic information. And I had a quick look just to see what they were predicting for the UK. The UK is too small a market these days for Zenith. So we're, we're lumped in with Western Europe. And they, they are, they're putting it in 6%. So rather than say, well, no one knows, the best people who do know is Zenith, and they seem to be aligned with me, so I was quite happy with my answer. <laughs> and a quick question to you, Clive. Do you think, um, so there will be an opportunity at some point for deflationary prices in the market. Do you think that's an opportunity for new clients to, mm. to get on air on channels such as TV uh, and also encourage marketing directors out there not to slash their prices because there's an opportunity then for them to get more bang for their buck uh, and maintain or if not increase market share or do you think I'm being a bit naive I know I would love to say yes however however um the great guys down at Zenith are still predicting six percent media inflation so there's still some inflation in the market I think what was really interesting was that let's let's go back to March 2020 yeah when the whole world stopped um, and we, we were all, you know, no, none of us, none of us had been through a pandemic before, not even John had been through a pandemic before. So we, we didn't know, we didn't know quite what was coming, right? Uh, we were into a massive level of uncertainty. However, by May, I knew we had, a, I knew we had a, a business, right? And the reason I knew we had a business is we have a certain number of clients who thrive in a recession, and we'll, we'll talk about them later, but certainly sort of gaming sector, they, you know, the recession doesn't really hit them. But also, had um, this unique opportunity, which is everyone had pulled their TV advertising um, and everyone was at home, right? So TV costs hit rock bottom. And exactly what you're saying, Kelly, happened. We could go to clients and say, if you've got some money, there will never be, and, and, you're, and we're sure that your market is reasonably robust, there will never be a better time to test TV. So there are opportunities yeah. out there to do it. Um, a lot of our charities at that point piled in. And, uh, and and you can't say charities clean up because it, it doesn't sound quite right. But they all did very well out of doing that. Um, so so I think that, that you're absolutely right. There have been opportunities. I'm I'm not sure with um, the recessionary impact on demand of people's products. So outside of those categories that do all right in a recession, I'm not sure there's there's you know there's going to be enough demand out there to do a big TV test to take advantage of relatively low TV costs. I, I, I don't think they'll go, I don't think they'll dip down like they have done before. I think they'll stay relatively stable. Mm. And, and if your market's not there, you, you've got to be really careful. There. Yeah. And do you do you think, um, so with inflation, there'll be a change in strategy for certain brands? Um, so just, just speaking from my own experience, um, I think what tends to happen or what I see is that there's a nervousness then around mm. investing in brand activity. Um, you've got pressure then from, you know, the CFO, the CEO investors that you've got to deliver on short-term sales. Um, and there's a risk then that all of your, some of your brand, or if not all of your brand expenditure then is moved into performance marketing. Do you see that, that trend happening for some clients? Uh, yes, I do. Um, I think that it's really interesting. It, it's, it's very uh Kind of the, 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 if you read, you know, if you read what the you know experts say to you, uh, what we read about is um, in in you know invest in your brand. All those brands invested in their in their brand during a recession were the ones that come out in a better place. And I think that's a slightly oversimplistic view of it. I think you know if if, if was I if I'm considering a sort of three to five million pound investment in my brand, which is kind of what it takes to move the needle in, in, in many sectors. Would I do it now? I'd, I'd think long and hard about it. I'm not saying I wouldn't do it. I'd want to know, well, if my market is down 20% while I'm doing that, is there enough, you know, is, is there enough in, in, is there enough in play to, to get a return from that? And I think sometimes there will be. So if you can use that money to get share of voice, um, increase distribution, uh, increase client tri customer trial, things that will have a lasting impact on your business, then I would definitely still think about it. However, You've got to remember, all advertising decays over time. So you, you do a big £3 million campaign before the markets come back. 
and over time it's decayed until you might find when the market comes back when you can really cash in on it actually no one remembers your campaign it, it's kind of so i think you've got you've got to be really cautious there about about taking that into account i'm not saying i wouldn't do it i'm just saying i would want to be sure i'd get a return from it in you know in a smaller market um still get a return from it I think that going to the, you know, back so so back to your point about okay, well, is it going to push us towards more performance? Well, I think it will. I don't think that's a bad thing, largely because we're a performance-based agency, so we'll do right out there. But parking the self-interest, which I have to declare, I my personal view is that is that most clients we work with have a threshold of spend that they can spend and still see a return. Whatever the real market conditions are out there, there's a market for them, they can keep it ticking over. So you can, I think, have your cake and eat it. You can spend a certain amount of money in a certain way where you keep your sales ticking over. And guess what? Your brand's still in front of consumers until your market picks up again. Then go in with your £5 million investment to move the needle and push things on. But that, but that is also it's a simplistic answer because it will vary by client depending on their market conditions and yeah. what, you know, what stage of the life cycle they're at. Are they, uh, you know, are they trying to use a land grab? All sorts of things can affect that answer. But that would be my gut feeling on that thing. Yeah. And do you see certain channels um, losing share to other channels? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think what you'll see is, <laughs> I hate to say it, is you'll, you'll, see, um, you'll see a change of creative emphasis. Yeah. We'll, we'll stop. We'll, we won't see quite so many beautiful, ad, beautiful ads. Yeah. Um, and we won't see, I'm, I'm, I'm now, I won't bore people, we're now down the road from Waterloo in annual offices. And uh, I always joke with colleagues that, you know, it, there's an IMAX cinema there with a 360 degree poster. I don't know what it costs, but it's hundreds of thousands, it must cost you. Um, and we always talk about, you know, oh, you know, one day, one day we'll buy one of those. Um, and I, and I, I don't think it's the time to be buying one of those. No, I, I think that actually just, uh, keep a level of activity ticking along, um, and uh, and with 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 advertising that works maybe a bit harder to keep things going and, and, and justify the investment is probably the way it'll go. But but the big sexy advertising, the the you know the, the some of the big spaces that people use, I suspect are going to have quite a tough time. Yeah. Hmm. Um, just conscious of time, um, we've 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 been going for a while now, so. I think if we... I'm um, enjoying it. Can't we keep going? Yeah, it is. It's great it's fun. fun. I was going to say, um, should we jump on to the next question? That, uh, yes, uh, I think so. I yeah. think uh, between Kelly and Mike, exactly. you've actually covered most of what we wanted to talk about. Yeah, so yeah. Um, to bring it back to agency and client relationships, um, and talking about the agency selection process. Now, Clive, you've obviously been through a few of these. Kelly, you've just been through one. Um, which agency selection process do you favour? Do you favour, this is a question to both of you, RFP with a formal pitch, uh, recommendations by reputation, uh, involvement of a third party consultant, or do you prefer self-management of that process? So, um, shall I take, shall I take that first? Yeah. So I think because it's fresh in my memory, um, Ollie, you supported us on this. Um, look, I, I realised when we came to the decision that we needed a new agency partner to work with and there was a shift in direction and strategy for our business that I couldn't have done that process on my own so I enlisted the support and help of um, Fuel Media and um, to support on that and we ran a traditional RFP process and I think what that really helped us do is understand the strategic approach of different agencies so it wasn't just about price um, but gave us also, I think, um, triggered and sparked some debate that interesting internally. So I think had it been a, a recommendation and we just decided to go with one agency, we wouldn't have had that breadth of quality of responses that we got and insight and ideas that I think really brought about a very good campaign for us last summer. So I prefer the formal approach, um, even though it was a long hard process I really enjoyed it I found it really really fun and I think you can really see the quality of agencies that are out there in the market 
um, that were able to challenge us on our own strategic thinking. So I think before we even went into that process, there were a few stakeholders, including myself, that said, this is what we should do for our strategy. Let's see what the agencies came come back with. And I think throughout that process, they really challenged us and even on our selection of media channels. So had we gone down more of an internal route, run it ourselves, or gone through a recommendation, I think we wouldn't have ended up with the same result um, that we, we ended up with had we not gone through the more formal approach. So for me, it was a real positive. Well, that's a great and very balanced answer from Kelly. And now I'm going to give the self-interest one. I think the first thing I would advise any client watching this is we've talked about trust, we've talked about transparency, we've talked about dark arts. I would, and it's a complex market. You, everyone should be forgiven for not really understanding kind of some of the some of the nuances of it. So, would I go into this process without a John Ferguson or an, or an Ollie Orchard? Absolutely not. You need someone there to support you. But then, but then I'll get into the self-interested bit, which is that our favourite pitch, yeah, from our point of view, is uh, we we want we want a detailed brief. We we love a really well-written brief because that's that tells us a huge amount about what the real issues are, right? So that, that's a given, we have to have that. After that, the, the, the very best thing I can hear, well, the worst thing I can hear is, here's the, the six month uh, RFP, RFI, RFP selection process. My heart sinks, because it's a huge amount of resource for an extended period of time. My heart leaps when the client phones me up and says, do you know what, You're on Southwark Street, aren't you? We're in the area tomorrow. Can I pop in with the team? Yeah. And, and, and he's expecting me to say, oh, well, I haven't had a chance to really digest the brief and do our research. But I don't. I go, we would love to see you. Come in, um, meet the team. Yeah. And, and we get it. And Joe um, will throw some ideas. They'll go, oh, that's rubbish. But I tell you what, you're onto something with that. You know, that, that's a really interesting idea. And it, it, it doesn't, you know, suddenly you avoid the false uh me of a chemistry session you really get into the teeth of something really quickly and by the end of it clients are really excited by it and and actually do you know what in an rfp process and the reason i'm not a big fan of them is that that i think what you've what we've i've just described there is real life yeah that's that's the client saying we've got a co's just given us a brief we need to turn this around quickly what's your thinking on it yeah and an rfp process goes on for two to three months there's a team of 60 people at the big agencies, all contributing to it, 58 of which you'll never see again in your life. And it's an artificial setup. So are you getting their real ability or are you, because they're brilliant. There's some brilliant people out in the street. You know that, you've, 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 you've worked with them, you've met them. There are brilliant people everywhere. Um, and, and if you've got a team of 60 people working on a pitch or whatever, it's 20 or 30 or whatever, you're bound to have some really cracking people in there. Yeah. But then once they've delivered that pitch, you don't see them. They go off to the next pitch. They do the same. They work their magic again. Yeah. So I think I think the the, the, the real quick right. What are we going to do here? Is a much better indication of what that agency is going to be like to work with. And I think that's critical. Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, you really see the proof is in the pudding. I mean, my experience actually is that we whoever was on that pitch process, ninety percent of them have remained on my my team. Cool which I think maybe might be quite unusual. Yeah. Um, and the advice, you know, that we took from um, Fuel Media is like have, once you send them over the brief, have a call with them, like literally meet the team, make it informal. So we had to do this during COVID times. And I think that really broke the ice as well. So before we even got to that formal pitch meeting where they're presenting to all of us staring at them on a screen, um, I think we, through that advice that um, Ollie and the team had given us, I think we really were able to break that down. So they were able to ask questions. We don't understand what you mean by this on the brief. Can you clarify rather than it being all over email and really formal? So we tried to kind of break those barriers down. And that was one experience oh, wow. that I thought actually was, was really good. But yeah, in a normal ideal world, I think there's nothing better than getting in a room and discussing this with your agency. And I think there is one element of the RFP process that, yeah, it is a bit formal. It is a little bit stuffy. Uh, and what we try to do is make it less like that. So I think it was 
yeah, really interesting for us to build those relationships from the get-go. I mean, one thing I really struggled with um, during the process is when we had a kind of debrief session, um, when the formal presentation happened by the shortlisted agencies is, who do I want to include on the call? And I'm like, well, obviously me, a couple of other members of the team, my director of marketing, but it was like, well, is there anyone else? Is there the CFO or the CCO? And I hadn't even considered that. Um, and from your experience, Clive, who who do you think I should include on a pitch going mm. forward? Because I, I found it a bit, of a, at first, a bit of an odd question. It's like, well, clearly, the it's, marketing team, but... It's whoever's, going to, it's whoever's going to interfere with the process is, is who needs to be in the room. Quite a lot of people. <laughs> That's, I think that might be the answer. I think that, um, I think personally, buy-in, real buy-in at the start is really important. So even if you end up with eight or nine people sort of sitting in there, I think if, if, if the CEO... If you know the CEO in a couple of months of time, you're saying, well, why have we employed these guys? Oh, I don't know. Well, well, why, you know. But then I think having them witness the presentation, have an opportunity to say so, it, I, I think they're probably unlikely to interfere, but you know you've got their buy-in. So I think that it, it's to do with whoever's going to interfere later on. And, uh, it, you know, I, I would, it's probably not a particularly good answer, but I, I think it's one to be mindful yeah, I think it's a lesson learned. I think there are a couple of stakeholders that, um, looking back in hindsight, could have been in that round and uh, would have avoided, I think, a lot of questions um, two, three months down the line. I think, Kelly, you touched on something really interesting and, and you take it for granted, but it doesn't happen, is you've clearly made that a great process by, by leaning in. You sound like you're actually genuinely interested and you've made yourself available. And sadly, that doesn't happen as often as you might think. But when it does happen, it pays back to those clients tenfold. So it's a really good thing to do. And also, I think it, it, it makes life much more interesting for us as an agency. And hopefully it makes life much more interesting for you too in that process. So Absolutely. It's, it's a, it should be a given, but it isn't. And it's great that you did. Yeah, and I think it's enabled me to call in favours as well when needed. And I think that's one thing years ago having worked on the agency side you know when clients genuinely are really responsive and open uh, to you then yeah. you'll, you'll go that extra mile and that's, that's been my experience absolutely totally yeah. agree excellent so um, can i just take one of the final questions as we yes please okay so we, we are we've obviously been talking a lot which is great um and ollie and i were talking earlier today uh, about we're out of COVID, let's say now, just for the sake of this. And I was saying that I, I live in Gerrard's Cross and um, Gerrard's Cross is quite a commuter place. And there was lots of chit chat locally about the car parks not, not uh, ever going to return back to where they are. But they seem to be filling up again, which leads to be the, the question. The question is, what do you both think about uh, long-term working from your point of view with remote working, maybe from the agency or with on the client side as well. Is remote working gonna drift away or is it with us for, for the long term? Um, happy to take that one to start oh, with. Really? Yeah, I think I've worked, so pre-COVID, um, I work in a remote setup anyway. So majority of my team, I'm based in Munich. Um, they're all over like internationally. So I was already had to adjust to the kind of that way of working. And I've seen it work really well. So I think if I'm to take the positives from COVID and the impact that's had on the workplaces, pre-COVID it was quite traditional. So you have to be in the office Monday to Friday and you have to be there, uh, whatever office you're in across the world at our, at our company. Now, post-COVID, um, what we've seen as well in terms of trying to attract talent so naturally we had some churn during that process. We've got guys that don't wanna be based in Munich. They wanna be based in another location. If we've got an entity there, I think that then gives us opportunities um, to offer more flexible way of working. But we've also given that opportunity to come into the office as often as you want. So me and my team, for the ones that are based in Munich, we have one or two days where we're in the office each week where we can collaborate and meet up. I think the flexibility that we're at workplaces are now offering, I think is good from a, a retention perspective and also trying to attract talent. I think there are some risks that we 
some companies maybe are moving the other end of the spectrum where um, it's fully remote and I see some risks to that. Um, I think it's there's nothing better sometimes than just getting in a meeting room and discussing a media brief. So there are some ways of working I've noticed are not as fluid. It's harder. So trying to liaise with your agency on a video call during COVID and you're trying to onboard them after an agency pitch was probably not the most ideal scenario and trying to build that chemistry. So I think for me, do I see things going back to Monday to Friday full time? I don't see it happening, um, but I see a, a hybrid approach. And I think if we can offer that to, to employees, I think it drives more satisfaction and better productivity. I don't know if that's what you feel on the agency side as well. Uh, I think uh, basically what Kelly said would be my answer. Um, I think I think the uh, identical answer. The I'm I, you know it, it hybrid working. We do two plus days. Um, it's here to stay. It isn't going anywhere. Kelly made a really good point about attracting and retaining staff, particularly in the market, the group market I've talked about. But my my thing is is about the. You know, the, 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 why would why not go fully remote? We've just taken on a new five-year lease and a new op, beautiful new offices. Um, it comes at a cost. Why not go fully remote? And there's there's two reasons for that. One is I'm paranoid about the development of my staff. How are they going to learn? You cannot learn in your room on a Zoom call. Um, you absolutely can't do it. And there's no substitute for being in, in being together as a team. And, and 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 then obviously that leads to a culture. I do not want MI Media to be the person that pays your salary at the end of the month. We have to be more than that. We're all off to Canberra Sands tomorrow for the day. Uh, we're going to have a lovely day. And I, you know what? I've got 44 people here and they're like friends. And, and the reason they're friends is because we work very hard to make it a lovely place to come to, come to, work, to, come to work. And I think that's really important. That culture uh, is, is invaluable. You can't put a value on it, but it's, it's just kind of gold dust, isn't it? Because actually what it means for, for our clients is people don't tend to leave or very low levels of churn. Um, that's consistency on that business. They don't have to keep teaching someone about their business and the nuances of that business. Clients love it. Team get on. They grow. We're a growing business. They all get new opportunities. They all get promoted. It's win, win, win. But it's win because there's a culture that they can buy into, and that's only done by being in an office. And, and the other thing I would say is that where where we we keep talking about it being a at the moment we are in contracts and, and, and in recruitment. There's a really good reason for that. Which is we are a service business and we can't take out we can't ignore the fact we're a service business so if kelly suddenly decides she wants to be in the office five days a week and she wants us in regularly or whatever you know the agency in regularly you know our clients dictate how we work so it's kind of like um you know if clients want you in the office you're in the office so it, it is hybrid working but with the flexibility that we react to client needs and that, and that you know let's see how that goes but so a bit of both long term. Yeah, basically. Yeah, it's a very long-winded way of saying a bit of both. Yeah. yeah. Well, you said it at the beginning as well, so that's good. Good. Ollie, back right. to you. Well, um, I think it's probably time to end there. Um, so thank you both very much for your insights. Uh, it's been a pleasure to host you both, and I'm sure that the viewers really will, enjoyed it. Have yeah, also enjoyed too. hearing your perspectives. No, well, thank you very much. Um, just like to say, please join us next time when we'll have two more guests sharing their experiences of the media industry and on that note thank you very much thank you, thank you. thanks Ollie. thanks yeah, thanks john see ya <laughs>